Hello everyone, I'm Paris Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership with Tom Fox, hosted by Richard Lummis. Hello, and welcome to another episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast about leadership. This is Richard Lummis, and I'm here with Tom Fox for another discussion on how to improve our leadership skills. We believe leadership is a skill which can be improved with study of both good and bad practices, and we try to draw interesting examples from many sources, including history, fiction, film, and business writing. Welcome back, Tom. Thank you, Richard. Today's discussion is part of our series on presidents of the United States and the little-known Gilded Age presidents. Today, we're talking about Chester Allen Arthur, 21st president, who became president following the assassination of James Garfield. Despite being little remembered today, it turns out he's a pretty interesting guy and I think an underrated president. He was born in Vermont to an Irish Presbyterian immigrant father in 1829. His father later became a Baptist preacher who settled near Schenectady, New York. Chester had seven siblings who lived to adulthood. In echoes of the recent birther stories, he was later accused of having been born in Ireland or Canada. There's no evidence for either. Chester graduated from Union College in Schenectady in 1848, became a full-time teacher, and also began studying law. He taught at the same school in North Pownall, Vermont, where James Garfield later taught penmanship. In 1853, he moved to New York City to read law with Erastus D. Culver, an abolitionist lawyer, and he was admitted to the bar in 1854. He participated in the Lemon versus New York case, which established that any slave arriving in New York with his master was automatically freed. He's also lead attorney in a case that led to the desegregation of New York City streetcars in 1854. He briefly considered relocating to Kansas, but returned to New York City where he married Ellen Herndon, whose father had recently perished in the sinking of the SS Central America. During the Civil War, he was commissioned Brigadier General and assigned to the New York Militia's Quartermaster Department, where he proved so efficient he was elevated to Quartermaster General. He was offered a post as Colonel in the 9th New York Voluntary Infantry Regiment, but turned it down at the request of the Governor, Edwin D. Morgan. He was removed from his post as Quartermaster General in January 1863 when a Democrat was elected Governor, since it was still a political post. He returned to practicing law. When ex-Governor Morgan at this point was elected to the Senate, um, he had close ties with Thurlow Weed, William Seward, and Roscoe Conkling. Conkling was elected to the Senate in 1867 and facilitated Chester's selection to the New York City Republican Executive Committee. Chester and the Conkling machine backed Grant in the 1868 election and raised large amounts of money for him. And Chester became counsel to the New York City Tax Commission at a salary of $10,000 a year, roughly $300,000 today. After some additional political maneuvering, Chester was named collector of the Custom House at the Port of New York, which had nearly 1,000 patronage jobs under him. Although the salary was $6,500 a year, he also received a cut or moiety of seized cargoes and fines, which gave him an income of more than $50,000 a year. His employees at the Custom House were required to pay campaign assessments to support Republican candidates, although in 1872, as a result of pressure, Chester renamed them voluntary contributions. In response to allegations of corruption, Congress ended the moiety system in 1874, and Chester's income dropped to $12,000 a year. 
As part of his struggle to reform the civil service, President Rutherford B. Hayes fired Chester in 1878 after he had refused to resign a year earlier. He went back to working with Conkling and the Stalwarts to consolidate their control of New York State, and his wife died suddenly while he was away in Albany. He never remarried. At the 1880 Republican Convention, after deadlock between Grant and James G. Blaine that we discussed in an earlier episode, uh, Garfield was nominated for president, and Chester Arthur was approached as a potential vice presidential nominee as a sop to the Conkling stalwart faction in an attempt to keep New York State. Conkling advised him to refuse it, thinking that the Republicans would lose, but Chester accepted it anyway. The election had an extremely high turnout of qualified voters, 80.5%, and Garfield won the nationwide popular vote by less than a tenth of a percent, although he won handily in the Electoral College. Tom, I think we should talk about machine politics and the Gilded Age and Chester Arthur's presidency. Where do you want to start? So uh, that's a great place to start, Richard, uh, because one of the clear themes uh, throughout this period is exactly what you said, the machine politics, and that lasted, uh, I'm not sure it lasted to our lifetime, but certainly it lasted uh, perhaps up into the uh, 1950s. Um, I guess with Mayor Daley, we could say it lasted (laughs) well past. Considerably longer. Considerably longer, (laughs) and perhaps even still today uh, in the city of uh, Chicago. Nevertheless, uh, machine politics not only control patronage, control the jobs, but in many ways it controlled income. And you articulated uh, the moiety system quite well and the huge amounts of money it generated that were paid to author and others within the uh, custom house uh, brokerage or patronage system. Um, one of the things that struck me about the author Arthur presidency was how he literally uh, grew into this office in a way that, uh, frankly, I was not aware of. And that uh, even in uh, the materials we read, I don't think we read anything about personal corruption, but being around that much money and being a part of that system, something uh, just didn't quite feel right about all of that and his role in it. And he did lead a very lavish lifestyle. And he did lead a a very lavish lifestyle. So perhaps it uh, was uh, in one ear and out the other, so to speak. Uh, But once he became president, he really took on the the machines and he really broke no uh, quarter from them and was unswerving in his attempts to finish uh, not only what Garfield had started, but what actually President Hayes had started in terms of civil service reform. So the uh, the machine, the Conklin machine in New York, I was fascinated to learn about the machinations of New York state politics and how in many ways it influenced the, the running of the country at, at this time. And that, that within this wing of the uh, Republican Party, uh, those pro-machine politicians were called stalwarts. So uh, interesting use of uh, nameplay, um, didn't seem to me they were particularly stalwarty, but uh, perhaps they thought so. Um, and uh, at least when it came to the traitorous Democratic Party. Uh, so, uh, well, one of the things that struck me, though, is you always hear about Tammany Hall yes. as being corrupt, which was the Democratic side. Yes. So when the Democrats were in power, they had control of all these patronage jobs. And when the uh, Republicans were in power, the Conkling machine had the, had the, had the uh, jobs. So. Just didn't matter who was in power. Somebody was raking it off the top. Yes. So the um, we talked about the uh, uh, election of, of Garfield in a prior podcast. And the thing that really struck me was how estranged Arthur had become from President Garfield. 
uh, at the time of uh, the, uh, not the election, but the inauguration. And part of it was uh, what the commentators I read, uh, I think, charitably called an ill-considered speech. Yes. Uh, <laughs> where uh, he, he acknowledged that uh, perhaps in one state, uh, I think Illinois, uh, that there was, uh, I know you'll be shocked to hear this, corruption. And I'm shocked, shocked that there was corruption in Illinois. Nevertheless, uh, uh, it was a Republican state. So calling out your own party for corruption was apparently uh, an indelicate matter between president and vice president. And that uh, because Arthur really was from the other side of the party, there was no natural uh, constituency with Garfield and his team. And, and he really was estranged from the president. Uh, he was not with the president uh, at the time he was shot. Uh, I don't think that was because of the estrangement. Uh, the Senate was in recess. As president of the Senate, uh, he really had no work to do, so he was back in New York attending to, as you so delicately put it, um, uh, local <laughs> Democratic politics, <laughs> uh, machine politics for the Republican Party when uh, he found out that uh, Garfield had been shot. Uh, and he did have, I think, suspicions were thrown on him because when Charles Coteau did shoot him, he alleged, is alleged to have proclaimed to outlookers, I'm a stalwart and Arthur will be president. Um, there was never any proof or any other um, evidence of a conspiracy. Nevertheless, it did sort of taint his, I think, early days. And the other thing that struck me about this phase of his career, up, literally up to the time that uh, he takes the oath of office, was it was still unclear how uh, the transition was to occur. Uh, because he was in New York, he had the oath immediately administered to him in New York City uh, after, after Garfield was dead, uh, but he had a state judge. Um, administer the oath. And there was some concern that a state judge could not administer the U.S. presidential oath. So they had to have the oath re-administered when he got to Washington. So uh, even... Also, the role, the position of uh, President Pro Tem of the Senate was vacant at the time. Right. And uh, and that, was, that would follow him in the uh, order of succession if he were to be assassinated. So um, the, uh, the, the whole... Issue of succession really had not been worked out. Nevertheless, there was an orderly transition and uh, no uh, uh, conspiracy party arose uh, to take um, take any any more nefarious actions. And this is where it really um, I was very much surprised to, to see a man really seem like uh, a, a machine politician uh, who had served the interest of his state as a state politician and, and really grow into a national leader because he he took up the um, the mantle of civil service reform. We talked about that in Rutherford Hayes. We talked that about that a little bit with Garfield, and he really uh, drove it uh, home and uh, in a way that I think surprised many of the people who he had previously worked with. Well, yes, and uh, the the civil service bill that uh, he ended up signing in 1883 was uh, sponsored by a Demo or written by a Democrat. So he actually crossed the aisles uh, in order to get this done. Um, it, it, it was an interesting case. Uh, no, at first it, it was of limited uh, coverage. It, right. it didn't apply to every federal job, but over over time it grew. The um, couple of other things, and let me just pick up on your last point where he crossed the aisle. He had no natural constituency in the uh, Garfield uh, administration, 
And I think we saw this with John Tyler, that he really was an outsider in his own administration. Mm-hmm. And once again, he was able to, uh, to he, or not able, he did use the veto, but he did use the bully pulpit. And he seemed to speak for what many Americans wanted, particularly around civil service reform. But he also took on uh, some additional roles in foreign affairs and uh, in immigration still was uh, a hugely controversial topic during this time uh, as well. And then we touched on this briefly um, in the prior uh, episode on Garfield, uh, naval reform. And the U.S. Navy had dropped from 700 vessels to just 52 uh, by this time. So now we're 15 years, 18 years after uh, the end of the Civil War. And uh, literally, there's four monitors left, uh, and they had to be completely rebuilt. We had uh, no uh, 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 steam-driven warships. Um, the Navy uh, only had three steel-protected cruisers. Um, so the Navy and any sort of home defense was completely lacking. Yeah. And as you mentioned before, this is at a time the government's running huge surpluses. Right. Um um, and, and one of the other things that, uh, that Arthur did was he began to spend some of that money on internal improvements um, rather than just banking it, I guess. Um, what did you think about his aligning himself with the Readjuster Party? That's a name I had never heard of. I, I, I will have to agree with you on that. The Readjuster Party was, I guess, what you would call a very progressive wing of the Democratic Party. In the South, and they were able to elect one senator uh, who held himself as an independent, but he largely voted with uh, the Democrats. Uh, but uh, he was this was a pro civil rights Southern senator, white Southern senator, Demo- no, former Democrat, former Democrat. So yeah. uh, the Trader Party that we've talked about <laughs> earlier, and so I found that really interesting uh, that he did that, and the platform of the um, uh, readjusters was. Uh, the educational funding that we talked about earlier in an earlier podcast, but also the abolition of the poll tax and which I found somewhat disheartening, the whipping post. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so um, uh, these uh, parties seem to be uh, forebearers of what later became the Greenback Party or uh, other populist parties, particularly in the South. But they had some very progressive ideas, certainly around civil rights, but also around economic reform. Yeah. On immigration, I think we'd have to say that Arthur's uh, record is considerably more mixed. He, uh, he eventually signed the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882. Um, he had managed to get the ban on Chinese immigrants reduced from 20 years to 10, but uh, after his after his term was over, it was subsequently re-extended and lasted until 1943, I think. So um, the other areas that uh, I found interesting were um, really around health. And you, you know, we don't really have to take on the issue of health, at least uh, we don't know we have to take it on. Uh, perhaps that's a better way to phrase it. But a leader like Steve Jobs, um, I've often wondered, should there have been more information in terms of an 8K type event? Uh, if you have a CEO that is that dynamic and really is that the brand is associated with him personally, and he goes into a long-term health issue, as Steve Jobs did, uh, when he uh, was treated for and died of cancer. Well, here, 
um, Arthur was diagnosed with something called Bright's disease, which was a kidney ailment, and he tried to uh, to keep it private. But uh, his physical appearance changed as he got iller, more ill. Um, he became much thinner, more aged in appearance, and he struggled to keep pace with the presidency. One of the things that was noted about the Arthur presidency was how slowly it moved. And the question I would have is, did it move that way in large part because he moved slowly because of these health issues? <clears throat> he took, uh, tried to take extensive travel uh, to help his condition, and I would have to say that was a bit of a mixed bag for him. But uh, he died uh, relatively shortly after his presidency ended. So I have to wonder how much that uh, uh, illness impacted him. We, we, you know, we're going to get to Woodrow Wilson in there. We had a catastrophic medical uh, issue, which uh, in, basically ended his presidency some 18 months uh, before he left office. But, um, you know, John Kennedy had health issues that have now come to the fore, and other presidents have had health issues. And so how much... Uh, uh, we're going to talk about Grover Cleveland and yep. a specific medical condition, if not a health issue. Um, so um, it really, this was, I think, the first president that we had some pretty significant evidence of a health issue impacting his role as a president. All, having said that, Franklin Pierce, uh, as we uh, talked about, um, may have been a living example of PTSD, yeah. uh, and if not uh, a closed head concussion. Yeah. Um. One of the other leadership issues that we have not talked about was the role of a woman called Julia Sand, who... Yes. Um, Shall we explore Miss Sand? I think so. She was apparently an invalid in New York City who took it upon herself to write letters to Arthur, uh, encouraging him to basically listen to the better angels of his nature. And there's a considerable body of thought that thinks... She was largely responsible for his change in position on uh, on the civil service. So when I read that, at first I thought, you know, is this Sister Mary Elephant yeah. uh, with her ruler uh, looking underneath her habit and saying, Thomas, it is just as evil not to do an act as it is to do an act. But you're right, there was an ongoing and robust correspondence. And although, as I recall, Arthur... Uh, either had or decreed that his personal papers would be burned at he his had death. had all burned before his death. Before his death. He did not burn these letters, and they yeah. still exist, and we still know them. And she did. Uh, they had a robust correspondence that really around sort of ethical behavior. And um, it's an area that uh, I think uh, we've rarely seen any president engage in. We've seen presidents have mentors or at least counselors, consigliaries perhaps, but here we had an invalided woman uh, that they only communicated via correspondence. I can't, I can't recall. I think they may have met once. Um, but I don't even know if, if he was still in office at the time. So um, if there was one uh, kind of one thing that seemed to sum up the Arthur presidents for me, Richard, it was the following that I came across. That Arthur adopted a code for his own political behavior that was subject to three restraints. Uh, Remain to be a man of your word. Be scrupulously free from corrupt graft. And maintain a personal dignity, affability, and geniality, uh, though whatever the circumstances might be. And that really seemed to sum up this presidency. And and I have to agree with your opening remarks that um, I, I had to reassess this presidency. 
And he may not have accomplished a lot, but I think uh, he was able to strategically make uh, a difference in several important matters. And, and you're also right that some I thought he fell down on, certainly in immigration, on Native American and Indian rights. Uh, but in other areas, uh, he really moved the ball forward on civil service reform and kind of cleaning up the corrupt state politics. And proof that a person can change. Amen. <laughs> On that note, this is Richard Lummis and Tom Fox with 12 O'Clock High. We hope you listen in for our next episode. This is Paris Fox again. We hope you enjoyed this episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership with Tom Fox. If you enjoyed the show, please go to iTunes and rate the podcast. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.